Pastor Dick is out of town today, and we have Pastor Mike Bartholomew with us this morning, and I don't really think he needs much introduction. He's a faithful servant of the King and here with us this morning. Amen. Wonderful to be with you. I always enjoy coming here, and it's like coming home, and I so appreciate it. And uh, I've got something burning on my heart tonight, or today, excuse me, and and uh, I'd like you to turn with me, please, to John chapter 16. We're going to look at some things that Jesus said. I'd like to set the stage for you, if I could. This is just a few hours before he gets arrested. He's going to be falsely accused and dragged away to a kangaroo court. And false charges will be placed against him. False witnesses will be purchased. They actually paid them. They'll make all kinds of ridiculous stories and accusations. He'll be found guilty, though he's completely and utterly innocent. They're going to drag him away to the Roman governor. They've got to get permission to kill him. Romans have taken over their country. They don't have permission to kill him. They've got to get permission from the, from the governor Pilate. He gives them permission. That's quite an ordeal. I could really go to town on that story. That's an amazing story. They whip him. The 40 minus 1, 39 times. They take him off. Drag him through the city streets. He's carrying his own cross. Up to Calvary's hill he goes. And they crucify him. After several hours of agonizing torture, he dies. They bury him in a rich man's grave. All this is coming. And Jesus is with his disciples, and they are clueless. They don't have any idea this is going down like this. And he's trying to prepare them. And he talks about a number of things in John 14, and actually John 13, 14, 15, 16, and prays for them in John 17. Some of my favorite passages of the Bible. And one of the topics, one of the most important topics that he covers is what's going to happen in their life when he's gone and how the Holy Spirit is going to come into their life. Now, I've watched something happen through the years as a pastor, and I haven't liked it much, I'm going to confess to you. I haven't enjoyed it very much. But what I've seen is that the average Christian at this point, when we start talking about the Holy Spirit, the average Christian dutifully nods, amen, and checks out. They check out. That's partly because particularly in Western Christianity, there's so many extremes and difficult ideas per, uh, perpetrated as the Word of God, which aren't. And so the Holy Spirit becomes weird and strange and hard to relate to. Really enjoyed uh, all the songs, but there was a couple of them that were very confirming to me this morning about this that I'm going to be doing today. And, and uh, so... It's, it's very troublesome for them, and they can't figure it out, so they, and there's all, there's all kinds of arguments about it, right? I mean, whole denominations are at war with one another about this. At war. I spent like that for 100 years. 
little over 100 years. And so we mistrust, real, genuine believers in Jesus mistrust one another. They have very different views, very different experiences. And if your experience isn't mine, that's because you're only half a Christian. You get it? You get it? You get me? And so the attitude is awful. And we can't relate to each other. And the Spirit of God that was sent to join us becomes an argument to separate us. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be so. And then the complications and the extremes. And so many Christians just go, you know what? Okay, there's a Holy Spirit. I'll do the best I can. Hope it works out. But Jesus teaches about these things. And one of the things that amazes me is through the years I've watched uh, pastor after pastor, preacher after preacher, particularly big name preachers, that, that tackle this subject and don't go to the Gospel of John and talk about the words of Jesus and what he said about it. Uh, call me crazy, I think he's the expert. I think he's the one that knows how this works. And they don't cover it. They cover other things. And I'm not saying some of the other passages aren't needed and, aren't, and shouldn't be covered. I'm not. But why should these be ignored? Why aren't they the foundation? And so there's this checking out. There's this disconnect that happens. And the average person, if you have a small group sometime, ask a question. Ask this question. How does the Holy Spirit lead you? See what you get. See if you can get some honesty. They'll probably tell you what they heard somebody say or what they think you want to tell them. But if you can get past all that and get the honest response of what their hearts is, you're going to find something out that it's usually quite unclear to the average Christian how this thing works, how this Holy Spirit being led, being led by the Spirit works. If I had the time, I would go through a list of what I believe to be uh, misconceptions. I don't have the time today because I want to talk to you about uh, uh, the, the right application rather than the wrong one. But there's a little Facebook post I do. It's called, uh, uh, is it Mike at Word Treasures? Mike at Word Treasures. Thank you. Mike Bartholomew at Word Treasures? Mike's Word Treasures. Thank you. I am terrible with computers. I have everybody that helps me. And so I write articles there. They're free. I don't charge anybody anything. I'm doing a series on this very topic that I'm talking to you this morning about. Please go there and read. I, I, I put out, they're one page long. That's all they are. And I do one a week. Might help you. So there's a disconnect. And it's a terrible thing. It shouldn't be like this. And I want to read for you a passage out of John 16 and deal with some foundational, practical ways that God, the Spirit, the unseen God, the Spirit of God, touches your heart, leads and guides you, relates to you and communicates with you. Let me read. Starting at verse 7, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. 
Nevertheless, these are the words of Jesus to his disciples. His disciples are very troubled about some of the things he's talking about. They're ill-prepared, but he's trying to help them. Nevertheless, he says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to my Father and you'll see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, I want to start with verse 7. When I was a young Christian, I read this verse, probably for the first time. I was 22 years old. I'd been saved a very few weeks, and I was in John. And I'm reading, and it says, It's best for you, it's to your advantage, that I go away. Now, I don't know how you handled that verse when you first saw it, but I was shocked. It's to my advantage. Yeah, and, there, and the different translations treat this word differently. It's best for you. It's good for you. It's expedient. It's necessary. All different kinds of ways of expressing this. It's really going to be a whole lot better when this happens. Now, I don't know what you do when you read the Bible, but sometimes I try to put myself in the place of the people who are listening. And I put myself in the place of a disciple, and I am shocked. And I'm going to say, wait, 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 back up the truck. Just a minute. How is it going to be better? How is that possible? I mean, Jesus, have you been seeing what you've been doing? I mean, you're taking care of business around here. You've always got the right word. You always have the right wisdom. You speak miracles almost faster than you can talk. Amazing things that are impossible for anybody to do, and they flow out of your life like a river. You protect us. You keep us on the path. How can that possibly be better than that? It's going to be better. It's going to be far better. Not a little better, significantly better. Not just a hair better. Lots better. To your advantage. It's expedient. It's best. It's a shocking statement. How can it possibly be? When Jesus is in the flesh, he walks with them everywhere. But when he's in the Spirit, in your heart and mine, he walks inside. He lives in here. For every believer, Jesus has come and God has made his dwelling place with us. This is where he wants to live. I don't know why. But he does. And he promises that. So he says, I'm going away, but I'm, I'm not really 
I'm going to be with you. Even to the close of the age, he says. Always with us. So there's a place where you and I have got to connect with this spiritual reality. We've got to find a way not to so much understand it. We start by trusting Him. By believing that what He says is true. Don't say you can't do it. You can do it. We did it as little kids. When Dad put us on the edge of the pool and he said, jump, and we did, we didn't really know what would happen, but we believed Dad. You were made, the world has told you that this isn't so, but you were made to believe in God. And he has given you a measure of faith, the Bible says, so that you can trust him. So you can believe what he says and then discover what it means. Because he wants you to discover what it means. He wants you to reason well. He wants you to have the mind of Christ. He wants you to use your brain. But in Christianity, faith comes before gray matter, not the other way around. It starts by trust. And then understanding increases and expands. It's best. They didn't understand it. They didn't believe it. Most of us don't either. But it's true nonetheless. He said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. So maybe there's a disconnect. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you don't understand all the sermons that people have preached about it. But can we start in the starting place? Believe that Jesus is telling you the truth when he says, it's a better deal for you if I ascend to the Father in heaven. If I don't, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, which we'll talk about in a minute, won't come. But if I go, I will send him to you. My friend Mike Stahl, who's gone home to be with the Lord, used to tell me, I'd ask him a question, because Mike was a, a brilliant theologian. Brilliant. I'd ask him a question about the Bible, and he'd say, well, first, Mike, you start by believing it. He would always say that. I love that about him. Now, in verse 7, this Holy Spirit is called the helper in the English Standard Version. This is a big word. This word is a big word. And uh, different Bibles translate it differently. Your, your Bible might say comforter. It might say counselor. It might say advocate. If we were getting real detailed, someone who comes alongside to serve. It's a big word. And this word had three powerful applications in the society in which they lived. And so when Jesus spoke this word, they, they understood something. If you say 9-11 to Americans, they have an understanding. If you say World Series, they have an understanding. If you say firemen, they have an understanding. If you say psychiatrist, they have an understanding. 
a baseline idea that's common to our society. This word, parakletos, that's the Greek word, has a baseline understanding in the society in which Jesus lived and the disciples lived. And when he spoke that word and he said, a helper is coming, a comforter from God is coming. In fact, in John 14, he says it's another comforter. We'll talk about that in a minute too. They had a picture in their mind. And I want to tell you what that picture was. You might never know this. You'd have to study the experts. And those who are, are professors of ancient studies to find out some of these things. But they had three common applications. Here's the first one. This one you've probably heard of. This one they used the word advocate for. So you get arrested and you get charged with some kind of crime. And the police and the district attorney believe you're guilty. And they bring their case and you go to court and you've got serious problems, you've got danger because if you're convicted, your freedom is over and your life is ruined. And a whole nother existence is prescribed for you for God knows how long, right? And so it's a comfort to have somebody come in. It could be a lawyer, but it could be a friend. It could be a family member who testifies on your behalf and tells the court and tells the judge the kind of character you are, stands up for you. And in this particular case, this person, this advocate, is successful. And so they, they are used to convince the powers to be that you are innocent instead of guilty, and you're declared innocent. Now, there's a great court in heaven. Whether you believe it or not, it's true. And there is a, stand, a set of standards or rules. It's called the law. And the law has prescribed and dictated all the rules that you and I are supposed to follow and how we're supposed to live life. God is not haphazard about life. He has very tight intentions and expectations, and they are perfect and right. And he expects us to live life his way. And here's the terror of it. We don't. We don't live life his way. We're miserable failures at it. We have failed on the right hand and on the left. We failed when we were young and we failed when we were old. It doesn't matter where we come from, doesn't matter what our background is, doesn't matter what our gender is, doesn't matter what our race is. We are failures, the lot of us, every single one of us have never come close to living up to the standard that God has set. The Bible calls that sin. And the word sin means missing the mark. There's a target. I have a laugh every spring. We have a gym teacher at our Christian school in Watertown, and they do a little archery work. And we watch the kids uh, fit the uh, arrow to the bow and shoot at a target. And we're in this open area so everybody's safe and nobody hits the target, nobody. It's hilarious. Arrows flying, but they're not hitting anything. 
We've got to make sure they're all pointing in one direction or somebody will die. Hilarious to watch. That's us. We miss the target. We don't ever hit the target. And so the law sizes us up and is the perfect and effective district attorney. And you and I stand guilty before God, except Jesus has taken our place and paid our price. Now, that's just, the, that's just the straight gospel, isn't it? And we believed. We asked him to forgive us our sins. How do you get convinced that God has forgiven you? I've talked to Christians. They say, you know, I went through this experience. I prayed, cried out to the Lord for help, and I'm a new man. How does that happen? The helper, Pericletos, convinces me that God has found me innocent. I deserved a guilty verdict. But the helper stepped in, in heaven, and I was pronounced innocent, and the Holy Spirit shows me that, opens my spiritual eyes, feeds my faith, and gives me a sense of well-being and joy and peace. You didn't get peace because you made a good decision. Sorry. You didn't get peace, but you're just, you're just kind of like that. You're just a peaceful person. Sorry. You didn't encounter this peace because you made all your wonderful decisions. It was brought to you. It was brought to you by the unseen presence of God. That's one application. Here's another one. So let's say you're in the military. And uh, it's the night before a battle. How many of you have heard that war is hell? It is, you know. And we, we do war differently in the 21st century uh, than, uh, uh, in this century, I should say, than we did all the hundreds of years, centuries before. Because when you were in war before, you had a spear or sword, and you looked somebody in the eye, and you killed them or they killed you. It was awful. Now we push a button and a bomb goes, you know, 700 miles away and kills a bunch of people. Now, if you're in the place where the bomb lands, it's pretty terrible, right? Parts everywhere. Put your hand in a, in a pile of goo, which was once your friend's face. War's hell. And there's loss and there's terrible danger. And they're faced with that. But there would come someone, a convincing person, to encourage them. On the night before a battle, he would gather the troops and talk to them about courage and bravery, and talk to them about how their cause was just, and talk to them about how, how um, if they paid the ultimate price, it was worth it. And they knew about this. The disciples knew about this person. This person was common to their society. The truth is, you and I are in a war. You may not realize it. You'd be pretty numb if you weren't, if you don't realize it. You're in a war. You're trying to win. Sin lies at the right hand and the left. Temptations abound everywhere. We have an enemy of our souls who hates us, 
and wants to destroy us and take from us anything that God gives us, wants to steal it from us. We have people in this world who hate the Jesus we love. And in our society in this day, that's becoming more prominent, isn't it? I'm old enough to remember when governments were actually in favor of Christianity. That's how old I am. Not so today. Very, very, a lot of battle, a lot of danger. We're in danger of being persecuted like never before as Americans. Just because we believe in him or because we stand for what's right. And then there's the spiritual battles that you and I have. Just the everyday stuff. Something's going on in your family. Something's going on with your health. Something's going on with your friend's family. And you're burdened down. I could tell you stories that I heard this week of children in terrible pain. Terrible pain. Going through awful things, unthinkable things in America. They're in the fight of their life. How does a person go through things like that and still believe and follow the Lord and find a place of peace? I, I, I went through a separation this week. A friend of mine goofed up. I made a mistake. I didn't say it the right way. Now he won't talk to me. Can I tell you that hurts? Can I just be honest with you and tell you how much that hurts? God, that hurts. To me, it's the most discouraging thing in, in, in life as a Christian. Of all the things that are discouraging, the most discouraging thing is when Christians can't get along. One different kind of battle after the other. How do we negotiate those battles and have courage to keep moving with Jesus? To keep on the path and following him, even though the disappointments and the injuries are all over the place, and we don't know how to make sense of it. How does that happen? How do we run back to the Lord and keep praying? How do we get to a place where we can say the three hardest words in the English language to one another, right? You ready for them? Three toughest words there are. I am wrong. They're hard to say. How does a person do that? How does a person realize that no matter what the price is for being a believer, it's worth it? Pericletos, the comforter, convinces you inside that trusting and believing and following Jesus and walking with him is the right way. Regardless of the hassles, regardless of the war, regardless of the battle that's coming this morning or this afternoon or tonight or tomorrow, who convinces? He says, I'm going to go and send you Paracletos to help you in those battles, to strengthen you, to give you courage. Did you know that faith and courage are, are connected in some magnificent way? You can't have faith without courage. Or faith demands courage, however you want to put it. And there's one who comes before the battle gets really hot to feed your courage and your faith and bring you hope that it's worth it. 
to help you remember that the weapons of our warfare are not natural or carnal, but they're mighty in God to the tearing down of strongholds. To realize that there is a battle we fight, and we're to fight it God's way. And we're assured of victory in the end. The Holy Spirit does that. Paracletos. The unseen presence of God steadying you when you would just throw up your hands and quit. Or run. And not fight the battle. There's another application. Let's say you got sick or you got injured. Now in that society, the vast majority of people were farmers. In our society, it's only a few percent that's farmers today. But in that society, just about everybody was a farmer. A lot of them, like 90%, 80%. And so you get injured or you get sick. Now, if you're a farmer, here's the thing about farming. You've almost always got something to do every day. And it's necessary. It's not some unimportant little thing. It's necessary. And so you've got a task to perform. You have responsibilities to fulfill that continue your business as a farmer and provide for your family and yourself. And suddenly you are ill. You've hurt your leg or you're injured and you can't do it. And someone in your family or some friend drops what they're doing, leaves their home, and moves in with you and lives with you and takes care of those responsibilities and takes care of you while you recover. They called that person Pericletos, helper. God says, I'm your helper. Can you, can, you, can you fathom how humble that is? How loving that is? Jesus sends the unseen presence of God because he understands, and may you understand, that the Christian life is an utter impossibility unless God's presence is in you. The Christian life cannot be lived without God's presence. Now, we have heard choices. We've heard preachers say, you've got a choice. You're going to be filled with the Spirit or not? Are you going to seek the Lord and be filled or not? And I understand that there's a choice. But can I tell you about someone else's choice? God made a choice. God made a choice that when you believed and when I believed, he would come and live inside. That's his choice. And that choice is more important than my choice. My choice wouldn't matter if he didn't make a choice. And so he's committed to live inside the believer. And the believer chooses to have God as their constant and forever companion once they become a believer. Once they confess and humble themselves and say, I need you, Jesus. God makes a choice. And life, is, as I said, is a battle. And all kinds of injuries take place. You get wounded. You get wounded. I, as a pastor, I've, one of the things I've done is personally counsel people. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. And never, no one ever comes to me, brother or sister, they never come to me and say, I want to sit down and talk with you, Pastor, because my life is great. 
That never happens. They never go, I'm having such a wonderful time. Things are so sweet, they're so good. Yeah, baby, I came to talk to you about it, Pastor. That never happens to me. I wish it would. Instead, they go, I'm in trouble. Or my husband's in trouble. Or my wife's in trouble. Or my parents are in trouble. Or my brother or sister's in trouble. Or my children are in trouble. And they talk to me about how terrible it is. How do you function in the light of the horrible things that confront us? The difficult things, the dangers that confront us. How do you function? How do you get up and, and, and become a witness to somebody? And share your faith with them when you've got all these problems? And how is it possible that you are effective? I don't know if you remember the Old Testament story of Naaman. Naaman was a Syrian general, and he was commander-in-chief of the whole army. Big shot. But he was a leper. And so the Syrian army used to make raids on the northern kingdom, the border. And they would raid these cities and villages and towns. And when they did, they'd kill all or a bunch of the men, and the rest of them they'd take as slaves. And so they took this little girl as a slave. And she ended up in Naaman's house serving Naaman's wife. Now her life is ruined. Slavery in those days, they didn't keep the families together. Hey, you know, I know we took over your village, we ruined your life, we stole everything, we killed a couple of your siblings, but you know what? Your mom is still alive. We're going to keep you guys together because we care. No, it didn't happen like that. That's not how it went down. You went where they told you to go, and that was it. You never saw your family again. This slave girl has had awful things happen to her. And she's talking to her master, who is the woman of the house, Naaman's wife, and hears that Naaman is a leper. Now, if you understand leprosy in those days, it's a death sentence, slow death, no cure. But she witnesses. We don't even know her name. The Bible never tells us her name. She witnesses and says, if my master were to go to Israel, there's a prophet in Israel who is close to the Lord. He'd heal him of his leprosy. It's an Old Testament picture of a New Testament reality. You don't have to be perfected to tell somebody about the love of God. But how do you do it? And how do you do it effectively? And how do you even have the inspiration to do it? And how do you find the words? And how do you remember the verses? Parakletos. The helper. The one that comes alongside and strengthens you so that you can obey and follow the Lord even though life is not being very kind right now. See how practical God's presence is? Now in verses 8 through 11, Verse 8 says, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. I want to say something about conviction, and I'm almost done. 
This word conviction means to be persuaded within, convinced. In other words, God comes inside your head and your heart and makes an argument with you that is so sound, you believe it. You abandon your, your ideas and attitude and say, you know what, Lord, you've always been right about me. That's the true place of humility. And so conviction comes inside. This is how God works with us. This is how God leads us. The vast majority of the time, it's not handwriting on the wall or some bombastic miracle. Moses did more miracles probably than anybody in the Old Testament, and he lived 40 years a quiet life in the desert watching sheep. Most of the time, it's not bombastic miracles that lead us. And so he comes to persuade and convince you. He does this when you read the Word. He does this when you hear the Word taught. He does this in your conversations with one another. He does this when you pray and He brings something to your remembrance. He does it in your experience when you say, I just went through this and here it is in the Bible. (laughs) And so He convicts you of right and wrong. And this is your life, and this is my life. I get up in the morning, and I've got choices. Immediately, I'm confronted with choices. I can do the right thing, or I can do the wrong thing. And all day long, I have before me opportunities to do the right thing, opportunities to do the wrong thing, all day long. What convinces me to do the right thing? Or I should say, who? You don't think you did that by yourself, do you? God bless your hearts. That little halo above your head, you need to straighten that halo out. You don't think you just did that. That was done by the presence of God. And do you know that when you're not a Christian, you still have a conscience? Something, a wrestling match of right and wrong is going forth. You just don't have the presence of God to help you. To help you find the humble place. To help you find the steadfast place of faith. To help you not defend yourself. Right? Somebody comes in, wants to take your head off, blame you for everything, you know they're wrong, and what's your first temptation? Let me tell you a few things, mister. What stops you? What, what is, or who is it that slows you down and helps you keep your mouth shut when you got all kinds of things you want to say. And who did you refuse to listen to when you belched out all those things and made everything worse? Because how many of you know, if you tell somebody off, that's not the way to peace. Have you figured that one out yet? That doesn't like fix stuff. I've never seen two people shouting each other that solve their argument that way. Somehow the shouting has to stop, right? And the listening has to begin. Who does that? See, this is practical. This is hour by hour. This is day by day. This is not some freaky, wild, outlandish thing that takes place. 
This is everyday practicality. Hey, I'm going to say this real quick just, by the way, just to give you the right theology about it. He convicts us of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin because we do not believe. The root of all my trouble is when I don't trust God and I lean on my own understanding. Then I am sure to mess it up. Righteousness. And it's odd. He says, because I go to my Father, you don't see me anymore. What? How does that? What does that compute? When Jesus was raised from the dead, he ascended on high. And that proved, when he was received back to his Father, that proved that what he did was right. And that Father accepted his sacrifice and his work on earth as righteous. Which means that Jesus is right about everything, all the time, everywhere, to everyone. He's always right. So if you believe something, and you want to do something, and you read something different in the Bible, guess who has to change? It won't be the Lord that changes. You'll have to change your mind. You'll have to repent. You'll have to come down off your high horse and say, this is what I thought, but apparently there's more to it than that. So he convinces us of our sin. He convinces us of his righteousness. And he convinces us of judgment. That is, Someone pays for my sin. And the proof of that is that our enemy has been judged. And that our Lord made an open shame of him and had a contest with him and won a thousand to nothing. Right? It was not like close. He won. Vanquished the enemy. And so because of that, greater is he that is in you the unseen presence of God, than he that is in the world who is trying to defeat or destroy you. And so here we have this conviction working, this persuasion inside about sin and about righteousness and about judgment. And you're going to pay for your sin, or Jesus can. That's how it's going to work. Someone pays. I can't tell you how many people have come to me in my life and said, that person's going to get away with it. No, they're not. No, they're not. Either they're going to pay or they're going to come to a place where they can humble themselves and let Jesus pay. But someone's paying. And the, when you become convinced that a judgment awaits, that you must stand before God one day and give an account of your life. And I'm going to tell you, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, American society, almost everyone thought that. Today, a good half of our society, the younger half mostly, don't consider that to even be a possibility. We are moving and wandering away from being a Christian nation, and we're becoming more and more an unbelieving heathen or pagan nation that believes whatever they can dream up. When you get a sense, I can't get away with this, I can't just sin and sin and sin and get away with it. I can't. When you become convinced of that, who does that? It's God's presence. And I'm speaking particularly to believers. One final thought and we're done. In John 14, Jesus is talking still about the Comforter because he does it in every chapter, 14, 15, and 16. There's passages about the Holy Spirit. 
And in John 14, he says, I'm going to send another comforter, somebody just like Jesus, who will do inside us all the things that Jesus did for his disciples outside. And he'll do it for every believer that will ever come to Christ down through the centuries and down through the ages, whatever part of the world they're in. No one is outside of this promise. Every believer has God's presence inside. Everyone. This is plan A. This is how to live the Christian life. He does not have plan B. He doesn't have a, well, i got a fallback position. No. This is it. He's come to live with you and live with me. And that's how much He loves us. That's how much He cares. And that's how much you need Him. You cannot live this Christian life without Him. Can't. Can't be done. It's an utter impossibility. But with the Lord, as the psalmist said, you can run through a troop and leap over a wall. With the Lord, you can do things that you never could do otherwise. You can find the grace to say you're wrong. Find the faith to believe for somebody even though they don't deserve it. Find the truth in how to relate to a circumstance and a situation. See the answer to the trouble even if it's a long time coming. And be able to be resting in it and say, I won't fret about that because my God is taking it under His care. <clears throat> That's what it is to be a Christian. is to have the presence of God with you all the time. When you're thinking about it and when you're not. When you lean on your own understanding and He convicts you you did, He's the one that does it. When you're tempted to do that and don't and rely on Him, He's the one that does that. He fights in our battles. He wins our court cases. And He helps us when we are wounded and sick and unable to help ourselves, which I have found in my Christian life to be just about all the time. Let me pray for you. Father, I, I bring this august company to you and ask, Lord, that they will become convinced that in a, the practical, most practical way that you are with them, Lord, that you'll never leave or forsake them. That within is the very presence of God who can do anything and has so committed himself that he comes and he helps and he encourages and he convicts and he corrects and he disciplines and he guides and he feeds and he provides and he cares for and he sees to it that I get through this life believing in Jesus guaranteed for the heaven that has been promised me. Lord, I pray that the confusion about the Holy Spirit will begin to lift as they reread the words of Jesus and just simply see the application. The practical way you work. And I pray they'll begin to recognize it. And understand, see when God helped them here and God helped them there. And Father, it will increase their thanksgiving and their faith. And they will follow you all the more closely. Because they begin to recognize the simple ways 
that you have said in your word that you are going to be with us. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks, everybody. God bless. Have a great day today. Amen.